Welcome to the January 2022 edition of Write on Audio, the podcast for writers everywhere. My name is Tiffany Clare, and as usual in this edition of the podcast, we'll bring you an exciting range of listener contributions, writing advice and features, including an interview with acclaimed young adult novelist, Frances Harding. We'd also like to extend a warm welcome this month to listeners of Beckentree Broadcasting Station, who will be able to hear this and future editions of Write on Audio on their station. We hope you enjoy the show. We'll start this edition with an inspirational moment from author, entrepreneur and pen-to-print regular, Arinola Araba. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity to be on this pen-to-print bo- podcast. My name is Ariola Araba. I'm known for having featured on the BBC documentary called I Blame My Parents and also for being the face behind the board game Be Money Wise that helps young people to learn about money in a fun way. The season that we've been in has been very tough for a lot of us. But for me, one of the first things that came to mind was an opportunity to take stock reflect and give thanks for where I am and what I have in my life. And also, it felt like a time to do all those things that I've always wanted to do, but said I was too busy to even look at doing. So during the lockdown, I got the opportunity to learn how to play the piano and also develop some other digital assets for the business, like um, an online course, I created an app, we created an interactive storybook, like a web game, and a host of other opportunities have cropped up, even in the midst of all the crisis and losses that we've had. So I hope that inspires you to believe that there's more for you as we get on. Thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts. Okay, God bless. Bye. You're listening to Write On Audio, for writers everywhere. Thank you, Aranola, for getting our first podcast of 2022 off to an inspirational start. Now, here's Write On editor Madeline White with her introduction to the podcast. Hello, my name's Madeline White and I'm the editor of Write On. I'd like to welcome you to January's edition of Write On Audio, the podcast that celebrates diversity, originality and excellence in writing for and by writers everywhere. A particular shout-out today to listeners joining us from Beckentree Radio Broadcasting Station. This January feels like a fresh start, which of course it is, being a new year and all that. However, after December's uncertainties, it's so nice to be looking forward again. With that in mind, I hope you're enjoying the new edition of Write On 11. Out in print and online, it's of course the flagship of the Write On suite of publications. Do check out magazines through your local libraries or pentprint.org and find highlights such as Claire Buss's full interview with Frances Harding, which is of course featured in this edition of Write on Audio also. February's podcast will be aired towards the end of February. Based on our new editorial theme of Nature Inspiring Creativity, Past, Present and Future, we're featuring an interview with Sunday Times bestseller Jane Corrie and writing tips from Danny Rhodes author of the critically acclaimed novels As Beauville, Soldier Boy and Fan. Danny was also shortlisted for the 2021 BBC National Short Story Award. As ever, we're actively looking for new contributors to our podcast, with 
with both the listener contributor slot and our inspirational moment open for submissions. Do check out guidance on my editor's introduction on pen to printorg and get in touch if you have fiction, non-fiction, multimedia creative pieces or just a short inspirational moment to share. Thanks to our partnership with Bloomsbury, the first two pieces we feature, either as listener, contribution or inspirational moment, will receive the newly published A Writer's Journal by Lucy Van Smit. Submit via the submission page on pentoprint.org. We hope you enjoy this episode of Write on Audio and look forward to hearing from you. Subscribing to Write on Audio is easy and will mean that you'll be notified the moment new editions are released. Many podcast apps will deliver new editions directly to your feed. In your favourite podcast app, search for Write on Audio and then look for a button or link that says subscribe. If you're listening on Spotify, you need to choose follow to subscribe, just as you would for a musician or band. We'll print more details in the show notes for this podcast, where you will also find links to our contributors and to the online version of Write On magazine. This month's writing tips are from Lucy Kaufman. Lucy writes drama for stage and screen. She has had 34 plays performed at venues around the UK and elsewhere, and she teaches both stage and screenwriting for pen to print. Appropriately for the start of a new year, Lucy's piece is called A Year's Experiment in Writing. Towards the end of 2019, I embarked on an experiment in writing. I aimed to write a whole novel in a year, as well as write it in a completely new and better way. I committed to this experiment wholeheartedly, even writing and signing a contract with myself. As the year progressed, along with my writing, I discovered some vital words which have steered me in the right direction of achieving my goal. The first word I started out with is freedom. I realised that if I was going to write, and write well, I needed to divorce myself from all constraints and get back to writing in the way I had as a child when I wrote from the heart and the writing poured out of me through the pen and onto the page without effort or doubt or self-censorship. As a child, I wrote when I was inspired for as little or as long as it took. Back then, with a whole six-week school holiday ahead of me and no responsibilities or commitments, I would fall into my own natural rhythm, writing with my child's inclination towards play and with pure, unrestrained imagination. I simply followed my inspiration wherever it took me, filling exercise book upon exercise book. As an adult writer, I had become stifled. The more educated I had become, the more self-doubt I had about my ability, continually comparing myself to the greats and against theoretical standards. The more success I'd had with one piece of writing, the more external and internal expectation there was on me to continue writing in that same vein. There was a pressure to keep pulling it out of the bag. But that bag was becoming increasingly smaller and narrower and weighed down with perfectionism. Few of us have the luxury of hours and hours to ourselves to write. My adult world had a job, family, pets, and many other competing priorities. I had the cluttered headspace that comes with it. 
by allowing myself complete freedom and freeing up a space within myself for pure creativity, free from all constraints, I was able to release my inner child and reconnect with that sense of play, of untethered imagination. I told myself, anything is possible. I can write about anyone, anywhere. My characters can do and say anything. In this way, I freed myself up to let go of my and others' expectations, self-censorship, self-doubt, and societal restraints. The writing flowed again. Surprising, truly free writing, which seemed to magically appear from nowhere. In January, my son and his girlfriend moved to Vietnam. This was a huge transition for them, but also for me. My baby was flying the nest. And not just to the next town or another part of the country, but to the other side of the world. Their friends organised a surprise leaving party for them, and its pirate theme had an unexpected knock-on effect for me. Witnessing my son and his girlfriend's willingness and openness to whatever their future held was not only inspiring, it also meant I stumbled upon my second vital word. Venture. Dressing up for the pirate party released my inner pirate and an exciting sense of adventure. Within my new internal freedom, I discovered the added possibility I could, without even leaving the house, sail the writing seas with the bold spirit of a pirate, battling the elements and taking risks, swashbuckling if necessary, but always pressing ahead, wherever the wind would take me. Pirates are brave, daring and unafraid of danger. As women, we are conditioned to be demure and obedient. Our writing often reflects that, writing what is acceptable, expected, inside the box. We are judged often more harshly than men when we step outside that box and allow ourselves to be seen and be visible. Our writing tends to be seen as a reflection of us rather than a fictional invention. My inner swashbuckling pirate woman lives on her wits, her skill, her venturing spirit. She eats inner critics for breakfast. So, by March, I was free, had released my inner child and inner pirate, and was a third of the way through my novel. But then came something none of us expected, the pandemic. Lockdown in the external world was terrible and uncertain. Understandably, we were all shaken by our new reality and were forced to go through a whole new transition with no choice but to come to terms with whatever was unfolding. In spite of all the inspirational quotes and guilt-inducing positive messages about how Shakespeare wrote X number of plays in a plague, many writers were unable to write at all. Yet for me, in my free creative space, lockdown was more of what I needed, the opportunity to devote more time and attention to my novel. Writing often, and for longer periods than normal, my writing finally had the chance to flood out. But it was then I got stuck, facing the difficult middle. It was at this point I discovered my third vital word of my journey. Clarity. Now my story was shaping up into something and I had characters in a plot, I found the writing mode switched from magically coming from nowhere to having to consciously construct. This meant that each morning it helped if I found my writing focus for the day with a razor-sharp clarity of purpose. With clarity, I was able to pinpoint exactly what I needed to do that day and exactly how I needed to do it. 
With this newfound clarity, the word count was soon increasing daily, meaning I came across my fourth vital word, dedication. The most common piece of writing advice is write every day. That is the only way the professional hacks and best-selling authors tell us. You just have to sit at your desk every single day and write, regardless of whether inspiration strikes or not. In reality, this is not always possible. And even when it is, our writing muscles don't always work that way. Often we seize up, our minds go blank, or our hearts are just not in it. What I discovered in lockdown, or rather rediscovered, as I probably already knew this, but nowhere near enough, is that small, focused, concerted efforts go a long way. A dedicated hour shaped with clarity goes further than 10 unwieldy, purposeless hours. Consistently regular, dedicated hours build up into good work done. Those hours can be where and when you are able to fit them in, as often as possible, or as few as you are able, but they add up to form completed drafts of novels. By May 2020, I had pretty much the bulk of a first draft of the novel, a novel which had come from literally nothing, no characters, no plot, no detailed plan. I'd just started writing, and now I had something, something I could rewrite and tweak and cajole into shape and eventually polish. What I had made by the end of the first year of the experiment was the word all my other words had added up to. I had made progress. Because freedom plus venture plus clarity plus dedication equals progress. And progress is always better than nothing. I could not have made progress without dedication and could not have been consistently dedicated without clarity, nor had clarity without venture. And I could not have discovered any of these vital components to writing without that first and most important condition, freedom. So, start with freedom and see where its wind takes you. Thank you, Lucy, for these invaluable writing tips. There'll be more writing advice next month. Frances Harding came to widespread publication attention when her 2015 novel, The Lie Tree, won the Costa Book Award. She has published nine novels and numerous short stories. As well as the Costa Award, she has won the Carnegie Medal twice and the Robert Holdstock Award for Best Fantasy Novel for Cuckoo Song. We caught up with Frances for this month's interview. The interviewer is Claire Buss. Write on audio. For writers everywhere. I was really interested to read on your website that um, you originally didn't submit your books or your work in the first place. It was a friend that uh, encouraged you or submitted for you? That was the case with Fly By Night. Uh, I had been producing a lot of short stories uh, before that and submitting quite a few of them, particularly during my teens and, and early 20s. Uh, and in fact, I think I think I first started sending off short stories to, to magazines and competitions when I was about 16. But Fly By Night was uh, the, my first attempt at writing a children's book. Uh, I'd, I'd been uh, engaging in some writers group meetings with well, I've been, I've been a member of a number of different writers groups. But this was a, a small group with a friend of mine called Rhiannon Lassiter, 
who's uh, who's colossally talented and who had actually been a published author since she was in her late teens. Okay. Um, anyway, we'd been we'd been working on some some ideas and sort of showing each other our um, our work, and she was the one that that noticed that the story concept I had was probably actually a children's book. I hadn't actually realised. <laughs> until she told me this and and at the point where she put that idea in my head the whole the whole book came to life so I started writing it with more enthusiasm experimenting very much pleasing myself putting in things that I found interesting and that I found funny or exciting or whatever and when I got to about five chapters of this Rhiannon said to me you know this is enough for you to send to a publishers this is good enough that you you can do this and I said no it isn't <laughs> um, no, this is just an experiment. This is basically rubbish, but I'm having some fun and I'll I'll see where it goes and then bury it in an unmarked grave. So Rhiannon, fortunately, did, did not take this cowardly nonsense from me and stole my chapters and took them to her editor. Uh, and at the end of the week, to my colossal surprise, I had a book contract. Do you think you still have that same reservation now, sending in to your editor, your new your new books, do you still have that same reservation? Well, the fear. Oh, yes. Good heavens, yes. <laughs> um, I, I make no secret of the fact that writing the last third of my books, uh, each book, I'm, I am generally convinced it's dreadful. <laughs> and I usually wildly hate it. Um, and, and it was clearly a terrible idea to begin with, but it's far too late, and now I have to push on and... and <laughs> I, I remember at one point in the middle of, I think, my fifth book, I can't remember which one it was now, coming down and basically ranting to my other half about the book and everything that was wrong with it and ending my rant with, and I don't even know how far through it I am. And, and, and Martin said, two thirds. You're two thirds of the <laughs> So you said that you, you weren't really sure you were writing children's books specifically um, until your, um, your friend Rhiannon um, pointed it out so and that once you knew it got a lot more fun do you think having that mindset of oh I'm writing for children g- gives you more leeway I certainly find it very freeing um, I think I think it's actually a, a better fit for the way I think anyway to be honest a lot of adult readers want to know what they're getting um, they'll they'll have an idea of the genre of fiction they like and don't like and it's sort of tied into their self-image and so forth whereas uh, I, I think younger readers are, are a lot more open-minded and so uh, I am I I have a lot more freedom to basically scrooge some um some genres of different sorts together I mean the lie tree that's 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 sort of a historical novel and sort of a, a Victorian melodrama and definitely fantasy yeah and, Sort of about feminism and blasting powder and paleontology and a tree that eats lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a murder mystery. I mean, what is that? It's, um, it's, yeah, it's everything. It's a children's book because you can get away with putting, like you say, mixing all those genres together. I wanted to ask whether you have a certain person or a character in mind that you write to. Yeah, my, my usual answer to this is I'm writing for a younger version of me. Um, some of my books are written for 12-year-old me, and some are sort of written more for 14-year-old me. And as you can probably guess from the books, younger me was quite a strange little girl. <laughs> um, and so, so I'm writing about 
the sort of things that she was interested in and which to a large extent I still am. She was interested in history. She she liked fantasy. She liked dark fantasy. She liked creepy elements. She liked mystery. She liked adventure stories. Uh, and she liked things that made her think. She liked strange new worlds. She liked new things. So I'm very much trying to write a book that my younger self would have liked to have read and had never re- had never read. I have this morbid aversion to the idea of retreading old territory and writing books that have already been written either by myself or other people I was I was thinking about wonder and I was thinking about I wanted to ask do you think grown-ups and children have a different sense of wonder and as soon as I wrote that question I was like well of course they do of course they do so um I wanted to know whether you think can we make that bridge can we bridge that sense of wonder and obviously you've kind of already answered that because you yourself look at things in a wondrous way. Um, what do you think stops grown-ups accepting that wonder? I, I think I think there was a, a certain pressure on grown-ups to have all the answers. I think by a certain age, they are they are supposed to have opinions. They're supposed to know or b- believe they need to know, or have already learnt how the world works fundamentally, and their worldview can start to ossify. You know, it happens when you stop asking questions. Mm. Some people stop asking questions because to do so makes them look ignorant. Whereas I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to admit that there are loads of things I don't know and the world is colourful and fascinating. There's a lot more I'd like to learn about it. What sort of tips would you have for people who are looking to, to get into writing specifically children's fantasy? The thing is, I'm, I'm aware that I'm a slightly odd writer and every writer is different. So what works for one person may not write for others. I would say don't patronise mm. because younger readers are not stupid. If they're being patronised, they're going to spot that a mile off. And then quite understandably, you'll lose them. Try and rein in self-indulgence, which I know is something I always need to do. <laughs> um, pace matters, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But other than that, Write a book you'll enjoy writing with subjects you care about in the way that you would for anybody. Mm. <laughs> try, to, try to write the best book you can, one that has emotional resonance that you can feel. Don't go with it with a lecture and then sort of cover it with a sugary external coating of story. Yeah. In, in terms of fantasy books that colossally influenced me when I was a child, and I think have had a, a, a lasting effect on my imagination and my own writing, I love the um, the Darkest Rising series by Susan Cooper. Oh, yes. Uh, my sister and I were lucky enough to have those read to us by my father, uh, quite often next to a blazing fire, which which really adds to the atmosphere. It was great. It's just you know, peace build, chapter or two at a time. And we absolutely adored those. And I, I think that's had a lasting effect on the way I see the world, on my love of folklore, my sense of the way atmosphere can be conveyed and the way that every place is subtly magical because every place holds stories that are still a living presence and into which one can stumble by accident. I have one final question. I want to ask about the hat. (laughs) Um, I have to ask, is the hat inspired in any way by the late Sir Terry Pratchett? It's a perfectly reasonable question. It is actually a coincidence. Uh, I I certainly think that uh, the late Sir Terry carried off this style of hat 
with with more panache than I do. Um, but no, I was I've been wearing um, fedoras and trilbies pretty much on a daily basis. I am I'm a habitual hat wearer for oh good heavens since I think my mid twenties. Certainly for for years before I got my first book contract, it's it's just a style I like. Um, it, that before that I used to wear little sort of peaked caps, but then my other half gave me. Uh, I think it was a trilby the first time, and I've always liked trilbies and fedoras because uh, when I was young, I, I used to love watching black and white spy thrillers and detective stories and gangster stories and and you know, the Thin Man films and things like that. Um, so I, I still emotionally associate hats like this with adventure and mystery and really cool coats with the collars turned up. Yep. <laughs> and, and and that's that sort of thing and and it's got that association for me it's not my author hat it's my it's my everyday hat everyday this, hat <laughs> yes absolutely generally speaking whenever I leave the house I put on I put on a hat like this I just I just didn't stop when I became an author do you write in the hat or I don't know you don't write in the um, hat. <laughs> and I don't generally wear it around the house except for zoom calls when Big I zoom do calls. absolutely because, I mean because even though I'm not leaving the house, my image is, and I'm interacting with the world. So emotionally, that still feels like a hat situation. I also have more hats than any sensible person should have, including some very silly ones. <laughs> Thank you to Frances Harding for featuring in this month's interview. We'll print links so that you can find out more about her writing and order her books in the show notes for this podcast. This month's showcase is compiled by Mirabelle Lavelle. Mirabelle is a writer working on her debut novel and an academic tutor at the University of Sunderland. Here she is introducing her showcase. Hello, my name is Mirabelle and I'm a teacher and a writer. This month, I have been fortunate to have the opportunity of editing the Pen to Prince Write-On Extra, January Showcase. I am delighted to share with you some of the pieces that featured over the four weeks. I have chosen for you a variety of inspirational, nostalgic and romantic pieces that reflect the human spirit at its best. I'd like to share three pieces with you today. The first one is an extract from a piece called Deceiving Appearances. It is written by Vic Howard who was born and brought up in the London borough of Barking and Dagenham. I was walking from the car park the other day when I saw old Sven riding past on his bicycle. Sven liked boats so built his own. In fact, he built several over the years. Being Sven, he wanted just a small boat, so his boats were very small. He eventually built one little bigger than a coffin, which he then sailed around the world. He stocked it with as much water and provisions he could and sailed off. Sven never had much of an education, but he loved to read. He also found mathematics easy and navigation fascinating, so he carried plenty of books on navigation and mathematics. Almost exactly mid-ocean, 
between Cape Town, South Africa and Montevideo, Uruguay, there is a tiny island called Tristan da Cunha. Finding it on a map is difficult. Finding it in a boat the size of a coffin with a sail the size of a tablecloth is slightly more difficult, but not for Sven Irvind. The islanders took to Sven, and he stayed and learned their ways. He found that there was another island, Goff Island, a short distance away, that the islanders liked to visit, but finding it was a hit-and-miss affair for them, and very dangerous. Sven was able to teach them navigation, and to devise a simple method by which they could sail to Goff Island any time they wished, and in safety. Sven Irvin's story is fascinating reading, and can be found on the internet. If you are lucky, and live in Vastavik, Sweden, as I do, you might see him riding his bicycle. He looks a bit like Father Christmas with his white beard. He doesn't need a sleigh, though, to travel around the world. Thank you for sharing this with us, Vic. I really appreciate the sentiment in this piece, because it reminds us not to judge others by how they look, and that human dignity is paramount in society. For the second reading, I've chosen a wonderful poem called Thank You to a Stranger. It is written by the very talented children's author, Laura McLennan. She wrote it after a family member received a life-saving double lung transplant. It is written from the heart as a massive thank you to the donor, their families and the local hospital involved. It was harder than expected when putting pen to paper to express the sheer gratitude saying thank you to a stranger. To find the strength in words that do justice to what you feel. To see in black and white that it all remains quite real. Because how exactly do you thank someone you do not even know? Someone who no longer walks this land with no more dreams to sow. And thank them for a gift of unspeakable value and wealth. A gift so hugely priceless the gift of brand new health. The gift of independence, time of hopes and dreams reborn. A gift that's bittersweet and leaves your emotions torn. A gift that requires others to give on their behalf. A gift that's so much more than a woolly hat or scarf. A gift that gives you life because someone has lost theirs. A gift that is more precious than all your worldly wares. And a thank you to the loved ones of the stranger too, for doing what said stranger wanted them to do, even though it hurt and they were consumed with untold grief. They agreed to give a gift that allowed us some relief. So it's evident that thank you will never quite suffice when a selfless act of kindness gives you the gift of life. But within our hearts, we're grateful for a future with a view. So in every way conceivable, thank you, thank you, thank you.
thank you, Laura, for sending this in. I'm sure it will inspire many more of us to carry a donor card, because the gift of life is priceless. For my third and final piece, I have chosen a short story by the northern writer John Holmes. The setting is a local, grade two listed landmark, which will soon be turned into a delicatessen, but which holds fond memories for generations of Mahams. It is called Tram Shelter. We met in the tram shelter at the bottom of the hill in Roca. Huddled in the driest corner, we talked, listened and laughed, managing to ignore the January storm that raged around us. He pointed to his house and, fighting the elements, dashed out into the rain. Knock at my door any time, he called. The howling wind tried to blow those words away, but I held on to them tightly. The weather had calmed down before the tram arrived. So had my heartbeat. I planned another meeting in the tram shelter. This time the January weather was on our side. We sat down in the same corner, now holding the warmth of the weak sun. Again we talked, listened and laughed. I had no regrets about having knocked at that front door on Roca Terrace. We helped each other off the green rotting bench and left the grade two listed building. Slowly, we walked towards our home of 60 years. A grade one relationship. A grade one story, John. I'm really pleased that you chose to share it with us because it is such an uplifting and joyful story. I would like to thank everyone who shared their writing with us at Pen to Print. We value your submissions for our quarterly magazine, Write On, and our daily online magazine, Write On Extra. Please do keep sending in your work to us, and we look forward to reading and sharing it. Bye, from Mirabel. In this month's showcase presented by Mirabel Lavelle, you heard Deceiving Appearances by Vic Howard, read by Chris Gregory. Thank You to a Stranger by Laura McLennan, read by Sally Walker-Taylor. And Tram Shelter by John Holmes, read by Sally Walker-Taylor. Our listener contribution slot this month features Bob Thompson. Bob won a pen-to-print flash fiction competition in 2020 and has been writing, acting and directing since he was 16. He has completed two full-length stage plays, The Equestrianist and The Richest Jewel. His first published novel is Old Tom, and his first screenplay, The Ghost Walk, is in pre-production. Here's Bob reading his short story, Carrion. Carrion by Bob Thompson It was an odd-sized coffin, too small for a man, too big for a child. It was carried by four men in imperial uniform. The cortege was full of the rich, big house people, their heads bowed in supplication. He'd been the heir, their chosen boy, who would have led the nation to further greatness. That his short life had been happy was a cause for celebration, but death had robbed them of the great man he would have been. Our iris had been crowded when first we heard the howling. It was as if the whole city was grieving. 
People were crying and hugging each other in despair as the spring weather paid homage with a slew of rain. Some arrived just to stand and pray, leaving their sympathy along with piles of flowers in their aftermath. An uneasy truce prevailed between rich and poor, out of respect for the child. When we die, our falling goes unremarked. Our corpses moulder, providing sustenance for smaller things, until our bare skeletons are crushed underfoot and return to the earth in ever smaller pieces. For them it's a celebration. They don their finery to impress each other. They cover the dead and parade them around before placing them in the ground. The old one looked tired and grey, his wife distraught. Her grizzled hair and matronly figure offered no prospect of further sons. The boy had been a blessing after a lifetime birthing girls, but he was gone, and with him all prospect of continuity. We saw the beginnings of the unrest many years before. Some of them lived in big houses, wore fine clothes and ate the best food. Most, though, lived in small, cramped, unhygienic houses, wearing cast-offs and eating what they could grow, competing with us for the scraps. First came the strikes. People refused to work unless they were paid a fair wage, but the big house people refused to concede. Starving, the strikers slunk back to work. The big house people controlled the law and made it illegal to strike. Then came the demonstration. People marched and sang and waved banners. They brought their families to listen to speeches by earnest young men who talked of democracy, and they cheered them to the heavens. The big house people didn't care for demonstrations and called on the soldiers. They rode into the crowd, slashing and beating until people dispersed, leaving their dead behind. We feasted well that night. It was then that the little one fell. The big house people saw their tomorrows being cancelled. Now of all times a leader was required who could maintain their place and privilege. A strong leader, a brave leader, a man. But the old one was broken by the death of his only son. We don't grieve over our dead. It seemed to us that the sadness lasted a long time before the anger began to grow. The second strike had learned from the first. They had enough food to last and picketed the factories so that nothing could be made. They'd also armed themselves and were ready and able to fight. We waited in eager anticipation. The generals were big house people, but the soldiers were not. Amongst the ranks were many of those same young men that the people had applauded. This time the soldiers listened to the talk of democracy. The mutinies began small, a ship here, an army unit there, but soon they spread until many soldiers were with the strikers. The big house people soon had no one to enforce their will. Some had left when the first strike happened, some at the time of the demonstration, even more when the chosen one died, but now the rush intensified. They left behind everything save for the shiny things they could carry. The revenge began. And soon they came for the old one. They took him and his family out of their palace and put them in an ordinary house. We watched as the daughters tripped gaily along beside the soldiers taking them away. Innocent of their fate, the soldiers stopped saluting the old one and pushed him around. He complied meekly. 
the bloodletting began. The big house people that remained were taken out and humiliated. Their assets were confiscated and handed to the people. Their laws were rewritten. If there was resistance, they were killed and left for us. They put the old one on trial. He explained his love for the people and his dream of harmony, but he was shouted down by the earnest young men who now spoke for the people. The verdict was inevitable, but they were nervous about the sentence. Killing in battle is noble. Killing as retribution is cold. They took the family away out of the view of the people. We sensed that an end was near. From our high places we saw the princesses playing happily, while the old one and his wife watched and guards patrolled. Autumn came, and the parents thought they might be left in peace, but the anger had been seeking a means to see the people's justice done. We suspected something when soldiers started digging in the woods. They took them that same afternoon, down to the cellar, and killed them all. This time there was no celebration, no cortege, no tears and no flowers. Only an old truck into which bodies had been thrown willy-nilly. Limbs protruded at strange angles, bodies deformed into weird positions, red blood staining white aprons. The old one appeared to be sitting comfortably, but blood trickled down his face from the wound in his forehead. The whole event was rushed and disorganised. The grave was just a hole. If prayers were said, they couldn't be heard over the dull thuds as the clods of earth rained down. It had been an odd-sized coffin. Too small for a man, too big for a child. But just right for a dynasty. That was Carrion, written and read by Bob Thompson. We'd like to draw our listeners' attention to some of the writing courses and workshops being run by our parent organisation, Pen to Print, over the next few weeks. We aim to offer something of interest to all writers, regardless of your level of skill and accomplishment, with options for beginners and advanced writers. We have a full range of tuition in poetry, fiction and script writing for both stage and screen. You can learn about writing for comic books with Wallace Eats and about writing the senses with Writon's Ethna Cullen and look out for Lucy Kaufman's workshops on script writing. As usual, you can find full details by visiting pentoprint.org and clicking on Events and Classes. We'll post a direct link in the show notes for this podcast. If you've enjoyed the writing featured in this edition and would like the chance to hear some of your own words on the podcast, please contact us via our email address, pentoprint at lbbd.gov.uk to submit your work. Don't forget, thanks to our partnership with Bloomsbury, the first two pieces we feature, either as listener contribution or inspirational moments, will receive the newly published A Writer's Journal by Lucy Van Smit. Submit via the submission page on pentoprint.org. Next month on Write on Audio, we'll bring you another selection of content for writers everywhere. Thank you for listening to this edition. My name's Tiffany Clare, and I look forward to welcoming you back to the podcast in February. Our producer is Chris Gregory, and Write on Audio is an alternative stories production for pen to print.